Welcome to the View from the North Curve, a podcast covering all things North Curve Celtic. I'm your host, Kev. I'm joined as usual by Tony and by a good few others. Tonight we're hosting a live episode, which is a first for us, so I'm going to make an answer to this pretty soon. Uh, just a big thanks, everybody, for, for logging in. Uh, let's ways live and you know, all the troops that are in the section and a big thanks to everybody again for tuning in when the podcast episode is out. Uh, last time around we left you's when we finished off the wee series that we were doing in the 40th anniversary of the 1981 hunger strikes. We spoke <clears> with <throat> Bick McFarlane, which was superb. Uh, another big thanks to Bick for coming on. And this time around, we welcome on Ronnie Close. Ronnie, big thanks, mate, for taking the time to come on and speak with us. Ronnie's on to speak on Cairo's Ultras and the history of resistance revolution with Egyptian football culture. So, Tony, how are we? All good, mate? Oh, good. Thanks very much for that. Good intro, Kev. Better than the last one. That was, that was all right, wasn't it? Feel, feeling the pressure of this live stuff, but done all right, yeah. So how are you, Ronnie? Thanks for joining us, mate. All right, thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, as I said earlier on, buddy, what we were going to do was just a wee quick introduction of yourself and then probably how you found yourself in Cairo. And after that, we'll kind of... The, the, if you've listened to any of the kind of podcasts we've done, it's slap dash and kind of haphazard all over <laughs> the place, mate. But um, yeah. it's, it's it's pretty loose. It's no it's no very structured, yeah. which which is kind of the way we like it. You know what I mean? Because we're not really that way inclined to have everything yeah. rigid. So, like, yeah, that was what we'll kind of do. How you found yourself self in Cairo, and then just maybe the wee background and uprisings, and we'll just we'll just take it from there, mate. Nice and easy. So. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Um, well, I'll give you the short version, right? <laughs> Won't go on too long. But uh, basically, I got a job in Cairo. Um, I was teaching and um, I just got a teaching job there and I just fancied it. And I, yeah, I think I, yeah, I applied in 2000, December 2010. It was perfect timing. And then a month later, it was January 2011. And it it was, you know, the revolution and the uprising. So I was thinking, that's not going to happen. But somehow it did happen. Um, I went to visit in 2011 to check it out, to see what it was like. It was obviously, if people remember, you know, it was Tahir Square was this kind of media epicenter. You know, we were seeing like a million people on the square sometimes. It was kind of a, a focus of street resistance politics. There were so many amazing things happening. So I went there, checked it out for um, a visit and then started working there in January 2012. So almost exactly uh, 10 years ago to now. Um, and I was there about two weeks and Port Said happened. So what happened was uh, a team from that's based in Cairo called Al-Ahli. Uh, they were, had a, a midweek fixture against the Port Said team called Al-Masri. Nothing was at stake. It was a very, you know, just run-of-a-mill game. Um, but, you know, there was a kind of orchestrated attack and 72 of the Al-Athli Cairo travelling fans out of about a 1,000 
died and about 500 were badly injured and hospitalized. So it was basically a, a really desperate uh, stadium scene. So what I was witnessing then as somebody going to teach media um, was just this sudden transformation in the whole city. It just kicked off. You had days of rioting. You had about, I think, six or seven people killed in Cairo on the streets over those days. Um, because people really were, you know, angry about it. The ultras were really angry um, because they knew it was some kind of orchestrated attack set up by the military regime who were then supposedly an interim government, you know. Um, but, you know, everybody knew something happened. So it just, it would have been really hard to ignore it, you know. It was just like, it was like a sort of tangible, I mean, you mentioned the you had, some of the Big uh, McFarland on last week, you know, it was kind of like a, an atmosphere, like as I remember, I'm that old, as remember the, the hunger strikes, you know, it was like, it was just like you couldn't ignore it. Um, so that was my kind of introduction. Uh, I started to shoot a film. I started to talk, meet ultras, uh, try to figure out what was going on. I'd only moved there a couple of weeks, you know, so I hadn't got a clue. I didn't speak Arabic. So, for me, it was a lot of kind of processing what, what actually had happened in Egypt, you know, through 2011, and then what this kind of football subculture was and what role that played. So it was kind of like a, a harsh or but a, an amazingly exciting kind of introduction. Um, and I remember, if I can just say, I remember sitting there and I had heard there was going to be protests outside the, the uh, clubhouse in Cairo, the Al-Atli clubhouse. And I remember thinking, should I go down or not? You know, I was a little bit unsure. And when I went down, I was really surprised by the, um, although people were really angry, the atmosphere was incredibly kind of celebratory and welcoming, you know, it was really uh, not a hostile or, or kind of aggressive uh, atmosphere. So that was my introduction in a short uh, bit to, to uh, Egypt and, football subcultures. So when they had the, the Port Said massacre, this was maybe a, was this about a six month to a year after the, the beginning of the, the kind of actual Egyptian uprising, the kind of revolution. Could you could you tell us how long after that it was and when did the, the ultras actually get involved in the the yeah. uprising that was happening on the street? Yeah, okay. So uh it was January the 25th, 2011. That was the day that people first went on to Tahrir Square and started to protest. Um, so that was the beginning of it. And 18 days later, Mubarak, the, you know, the president who'd been in power for 30 years, he was forced to resign. And what you had then was you had like, basically a military government took over. They were sort of uh, they were called SCAF. It was like Supreme Council of Armed Forces. And they were supposedly just, you know, keeping the country afloat whilst it was moving towards democratic processes, you know, like elections and so forth. Um, so Port Said happened on the 2nd of February 2012. So it's just almost a year later after uh, the initial spark of the revolution. And when, when, just to pedal back a little bit, like actually when 2011 happened, 
uh, January 25th, 2011, the, there were calls on social media for protests and the uh, both the, there's two main ultras uh, outfits in Egypt. One is aligned to this team called Al-Ahli, which is, you know, the biggest fan base in Africa, probably 20 million fans or something like that, you know, a huge club. Uh, and then the other one is called Zamalik, and they have an ultras crew called the White Knights. So they're the two main groups. They're fairly sizable uh, memberships. So both of them said on their Facebook pages, which are their main kind of publishing uh, forum, they both said, we do not want or we do not support the calls for protests on January the 25th because we're football fans and this is our position. You know, we don't want to get embroiled into politics. But of course, in reality, um, you know, the ultras had had uh, a history of, you know, conflict with the cops, with the state. They'd been imprisoned, harassed. Um, so they had a lot of grounds to be pissed off. And they were also, you know, the youth, you know, they're also the people who were the main drivers. So officially they didn't, you know, support it as a movement, but individually they were, uh, membership, you know, was totally um, allowed to go or encouraged to go and get part of it. And, you know, in, in terms of, you know, moments of revolution, it's really hard to kind of identify what's happening. You know, it's like you have so many different kinds of groups and factions involved, but the ultras were the only organized groups. You know, they were the only ones that were, um, had any experience of uh, police conflict and fighting with the police, you know. So when the police and others attacked those protesters, which they did right from day one, um, they needed people there to defend them. And, you know, in my own way, I was there in Port Said. I saw, you know, the kind of level of street organization that went on there. You know, you had these sort of ad hoc field hospitals, because again, when people got injured, they couldn't go to the regular hospitals because they'd be arrested by the police and imprisoned. So, you know, you had this amazing kind of alternative state running, you know, on the streets um, that was you know, keeping the revolution alive. And the ultras were, I think, you know, certainly a kind of vanguard. They were certainly a really um, big player. And also what people, you know, other protest groups, um, what they often said was that if they felt the ultras were there on the streets, they would feel safer because they know there'd be this kind of fairly robust, you know, groups that wouldn't uh, back down. Because also just to put it in context, I mean, you know, it wasn't a peaceful revolution. You know, people might think that now or something, you know. I mean, um, you know, I think it's around 3,000 people were killed, you know, and tens of thousands injured and maimed. So it was a very violent, uh, you know, the period from 2011 to when Sisi took over in 2014, you know, there were around 3,000 deaths. So that's a pretty violent uh, struggle, you know, and the ultras were part of that. See, just during that period, Ronnie, you know, yeah. from two, as you said there, from 2012, maybe into 2015, what, what was the situation, the actual football, you know, in the grounds, the football got stopped and yeah, the groups yeah. actually, you know, banned yeah. or arrested? Or... Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the football story is um, like football was a space for dissent, you know, for political dissent, for slogans. 
the, the Not football, a feeling. Yeah, yeah. Football is loved in Egypt. You know, it's so every every time there's a game on, you know, it's like the city stops or the cities stop. You know, people are watching football everywhere. So these games are going out live, and it means that when the ultras are chanting anti-government or whatever, you know, that's going out live on television. People are hearing that. Um, so through 2011, football became, you know, a kind of political space, you know, for, for all the, for the ultras and for others, you know, to express their opinions. Then 2012, uh, the massacre in Port Said, the first step was that the government just shut down all football for that season. So there was no football games of any sort. The, the uh, September then of 2012, they opened up the league again, but they banned fans. So no fans could attend any game. So every game was just in an empty stadium, you know? So that went on till 2015. And then they started to let uh, small amounts of fans attend some games, you know, a couple of thousand, they would be heavily controlled, heavily policed, heavily uh, watched. And that led to a kind of sense of frustration that in 2015, there was another violent incident with the cops um, where 20 people were killed at a game where they were trying to rush into a game uh, through this kind of barricade. And literally people just got crushed. And then they, the police fired into the, into the crowd and just, you know, just killed people. People got trampled on and stuff. So very, very similar to Port Said, just on a, a slightly smaller scale. So this, in a way, though, gave the government the perfect excuse not to open up football properly. So it was only in 2018, which is, what, six years from Port Said, the two ultra groups, as I mentioned, um, Al-Atli and Zamalek, they both disbanded. They did these ceremonial burnings of their flags. Uh, they had some media people there who filmed it, and they published these statements on, on social media that, you know, basically the ultras were over in Egypt. And only then were some of them released from prison. A lot of them, there was a couple of hundred of them just, you know, on these spurious kinds of charges uh, in prison for years. So they started to be released. This was part of a deal that the ultras did with the state. Um, and then the games were, were opened up a little bit more, but they're still very, very controlled. Uh, to attend a game, you have to go through a, a, a pre-game pre security screening by the police. So, you know, if you've got any kind of ultras record, you know, they're just not going to let you attend it. Um, so there are games, but they're, they're nothing like the games they used to be, you know, previously before Portside. Have you seen that, Ronnie? Just to give people a wee bit of context as well as what you were saying before we came on. Um, like football, is, as you were saying, football is absolutely massive in Egypt. And you were talking to me a wee bit about the background on it, about kind of British imperialism and how that affected the Egyptian, how the Egyptian team started and that kind of stuff. Can you kind of explain that to people a wee bit more about the actual origins of the football club starting and how it was actually political to an extent as well? Yeah, sure. Um, so the first team that was founded um, was a British team. It was like an imperial team. 
that didn't allow Egyptians to play for it or to attend any games or to have any involvement with it. It was purely like Egypt was then under a, the British colonial rule. So it was basically a colonial game for colonial rulers. Um, and as a response to that, in 1907, this uh, team, uh, Al Ahli, which I said earlier, I think uh, was is nation or family in Arabic, um, they were founded in 1907. And this was then a, uh, a team that Egyptians could play for and, you know, attend games. So this gave football a kind of anchoring, but it also fused with uh, nationalist politics. So, for instance, in 1922, Egypt got a kind of conditional um, sovereignty from British rule, you know, and that was coming about through a really sustained uh, political agitation at the time. Very, very similar to the kind of nationalist politics in Ireland at the time as well. And in fact, I think Egyptian and, and Irish nationalists were in contact with each other and aware of their, both of their anti-colonial uh, struggles. So as I said, Al-Atli is the most popular team. Um, its fan base is huge. It's like 20 million or so. You know, it's a, it's a huge club. It's the most successful club in Africa. You know, it's won the um, African Championship 10 times, you know. So it's a, it's a big club in the Arab world, but also in, in an African context as well. Um, so that was, and then from that, you know, a domestic league evolved and, you know, like Port Said have a team, all the regional cities have their own teams. And then there's like weird teams, like, uh, you know, the police have got their own team and uh, some uh, petrochemical companies have got their own teams, you know? So it's kind of a very weird uh, setup. And that original British team, Zamalek, they have been co-opted into the uh, Egyptian you know, state totally. And in fact, their ultra fans are really, really radical and very, very anti-state um, and have got actually the brunt of the oppression, I would say, from the Egyptian state over the years. Is the, po the Polish team not get their own ultras, Ronnie? That'd be <laughs> quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's see, the, see, that's the weird so thing, actually. Sorry, just to, didn't mean to no, interrupt you, you, but you don't, you don't get that sort of um, left-wing, right-wing thing, you know? Um, like just to actually maybe say what what it means to be an ultra there, you know. Uh, so you may be aware of it, but Egypt is 90 percent Muslim, but it's also 10 percent uh, Coptic Christian, you know, who are actually, you know, predate uh, Islam, you know. So now usually those two, it's a kind of religious organized society and usually those two sides do not mix. You know, they're they just go to different schools. They live in different areas they just don't really mix but the ultras was the one space that they did actually join together and mix in and the other thing is that the ultras are completely uh, classless like egypt is a very uh, you know diverse and kind of uh, there's a huge kind of inequality between rich people and and uh, you know working class people but yet the ultras would be one space where they would actually uh, you know gather together and not have you know, there'd be no kind of animosities or whatever. So I think these were part of the things that actually threatened the government, you know, because maybe a question you might think is, well, you know, why would, you know, why did Port Said happen or why, you know, why would uh, the state do something like that? I mean, to have 72 fans die at a game is really 
you know, it's it's horrific, right? It really puts Egyptian football in a very bad light internationally. But the thing is that the uh, the state always used this kind of system of hi- basically hiring, you know, what they called thugs, or in Arabic they'd say baltageya, which are just people I hired just to, you know, like, like agent provocateurs, people who just go and do violent acts for money. Um, so they've used, they've always used that as a way to squash any kind of political resistance. They did it in Tahrir Square in 2011. You didn't just have army and police shooting at people. You actually had all sorts of, you know, people organizing and attacking the protesters. Um, there was one famous incident, for instance, called the Battle of the Camels, where these guys came in on camels in broad daylight into Tahrir Square with swords and started slashing people, you know? I mean, this is, you know, like not a, this is a totally documented event. So Egypt has always had this kind of very oppressive system ever since it got full uh, colonial freedom, you know, in 1952. It's always had this sort of oppressive police state that has all these, very similar to a lot of countries like Syria is another case, um, you know, where they just have all these kind of different ways to repress people. And somehow they, they saw the ultras as kind of very dangerous to their, to their state. You know, they didn't see them as like football fans. They saw them as something more threatening. Ronnie, just, just a wee, a wee one, I was actually listening to one of your previous podcasts the other day there, and there was a wee one that came up that I thought would be quite interesting for you know everybody listening in, that when the ultra scene was coming into Egyptian football, it was actually an Egyptian boy that was studying in Bologna in Italy and, and you know took sort of games in over there and different things, if you want to maybe speak about that. Yeah, sure. Um, he's actually passed away, unfortunately, died uh, of of illness recently but um yeah i mean he was from a fairly wealthy family and maybe it's also for for you know for your listeners it's also kind of you know to kind of know a little bit about egypt you know what sort of country is it or so i think you were talking about morocco to me earlier it i think there would be a lot of parallels there you know so you'll have like an upper class that will you know live like rich people anywhere you know they have all the the kind of wealth um, that you would expect. And he was actually from that kind of a family because he could afford to study in Italy. And he went to Bologna and he was studying there and he saw the, the ultras fans in Italy. And he just decided when he got back to Egypt, he would just set up a thing with a couple of his friends just to give some kind of life to the games because apparently the Egyptian league is not very exciting football wise you know um you have the two big teams like i said Atli and zamalek and they're huge derby games you know they're uh, like cairo stadium's about eighty thousand seater so you know you've got a crowd of about a hundred thousand squeezing in there so it's you know it's a real cauldron atmosphere but other games like when you have the police team or whatever you know or these uh, petrochemical teams you know there's nobody at it they haven't really got any fans so um, I think the, the appeal of the ultras was to actually do something on the stadium, you know, on the terraces and kind of not get that involved in the football, you know, just to give you something to do. So he had seen how 
you know, Italian uh, ultras, you know, do the TIFOs and, you know, all this stuff. And he just started to do that with his friends and it caught on and other people were drawn to it. And then very quickly, apparently they were perceived as being like political protesters. And then, you know, the cops started to harass them, the, you know, they were getting into fights and then they were started to arrest them before games, all this kind of stuff that then, you know, made them, I think, a, a more, you know, more passionate about it, you know, because that, that was, you know, they were kind of really getting this reaction. And it seemed to be hugely popular. I mean, you know, it seems to have really captured people's imaginations. Yeah, you were you were talking about the Derby, Ron. It was 80, like 80,000 people, or about 100,000 in the stadium. Yeah. One of the, the questions somebody's asked, and I was just thinking, if Alali started as a kind of nationalist team and Zamalek kind of evolved from the, the Brit imperialist team, mm. what, what was the rivalry like between them up until the revolution and then... How did they kind of, did they just put aside their differences to, to participate and take on the cops or, or was there animosity still between them or, or did the, the people kind of come first? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, what football games were like, you know, in the 50s and 60s because there wasn't this kind of slow build. Like the ultras, as I said, was introduced in 2007. So it's, you know, it's a very short history, really. Um, uh, and there wasn't any, I mean, there was obviously a lot of animosity at games, right? You know, it's obviously two, two, two different uh, teams that are really up against each other and really two really powerful rivals, you know. But um, during the revolution, all of those differences were set aside and, you know, on Tahrir Square and other protest sites, both sets of fans were were out protesting together. Um, I remember when Port Said happened, you know, the Zamalek Ultras were as angry as the Alatli Ultras were, you know, the, it was, you know, kind of unified. They were, they because they could see what was coming and, you know, what it was all about. So, yeah, there was kind of usual uh, football rivalry. There was probably a little bit more rivalry with Port Said, actually, um, because that's another city, you know. It's a Mediterranean coastal city on the Suez Canal. And it's kind of a bit of a tough city, you know. It's a bit of an independent place. So I think there was a sort of animosity between, particularly between Al-Ahli being Cairo-based and uh, Port Said. But... You know, I, I don't think there was any massive kind of, um, you know, uh, vi there was really very few violent incidences. Nothing that would ever rank on the level of Port Said or the other Air Force Stadium um, massacre. See, taking it back to Port Said, I know you'd have to be kind of very careful what you say kind of thing, because yeah. you always see you travel to Egypt and stay in there. Um, but as... How would you kind of put that? Was the, the incidents that happened there, was that what people were trying to say is because of the rivalry between the fans? Or was it well known it was the security forces involved in it? Because I remember seeing that there was two brothers that played for the Port Said team and they were saying that the fans, they were speaking to say that the, the kind of cops just stood back or else says to them, 
you can't let them come to your city and behave this way and kind of just stand back. And then there was things like the gates being welded shut and different stuff like that. So could you kind of explain a wee bit more about the, what actually happened in Portside as, as much as you can? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, what we know about it, you know, because, you know, you can, there weren't, part of the problem is that there was no proper police investigation. Um, there were no autopsies done on the bodies. There was no proper forensics. There were no arrests made on the night of Port Said. So, you know, it, it's in that sort of gap or the absence of proper investigation, you know, it, it sort of builds um, speculation on what happened. But what we do know what happened because there was it was a game that was on TV. It was been shown live on television. Um, and we could see... and. Media reports afterwards got eyewitness accounts. So, so what happened was there were a thousand uh, Cairo Al Ahly fans went to Port Said. So that's the first thing. One thousand. Um, the home team Al Masri from Port Said. There was no security on the game itself, so nobody was getting searched coming in. There was no kind of process there. There was very little security in the stadium, um, and like you said. Uh, all the gates were locked. And in one case where the ultras were, it was actually welded. Now, this is against uh, FIFA rules. You can't actually do that. And in fact, the, the only way that that gate was opened was because some ultras on the outside actually pulled the gate down. They were able to somehow pull the whole thing down. Only for that, there would have been more people killed in the stampede and in the pile of bodies that were trying to get out of the stadium. So... You know, that's a, that's a suspicious fact. And then the fact that the uh, fans, if you like, who attacked the, uh, the Cairo fans, you know, a lot of them were armed. You know, they had knives, they had sticks. Um, you know, there was, the police made no attempt. And in fact, also another thing that adds to suspicion is that the Al-Masri, the Port Said team, they won the game. They won it 3-1. Right. So they were the home team. They invaded the pitch during the halftime. And then at the final whistle, they invaded the pitch. So, you know, so there was no there was no reason for them. You know, there was no kind of history of some particular incident that was going to trigger this violence. And then the, in the media uh, recording of events that happened afterwards, there were people who were uh, coming forward saying they were paid to go in and attack the Cairo Ultras. You know, they were given... I actually read one where it was like something like, you know, 10 euros or something. You know, it's like a really small amount of money. It's really sad. So so there was no security. Uh, the gates were locked, uh, you know, and there was a whole kind of suspicious atmosphere right from the kickoff that day. And, of course, it did actually... So almost match the one year anniversary of the revolution. So in a way, this was sending out a statement, not only to the ultras, to not get above yourselves, to not think that you're going to topple governments anytime you feel like it, but also to the, the people who were protesting, the various kinds of people invested in, in a more democratic society, also saying that, you know, don't think there's some kind of almost like Robin Hood characters, you know, there to kind of, save you or whatever and in you know in the immediate aftermath of Port Said right well as I was saying to you it was something that I experienced personally you know there was this huge 
wave of protest and, and actual rioting for days and, you know, all this stuff. And the ultras became, you know, almost the kind of spearhead of what was left of the revolutionary movement at that time. But, you know, over the years, I, you know, I've seen it myself, how that ultras movement has been, you know, oppressed and now is it has kind of ended up in disarray. You know, I mean, the, the ultras units are, are disbanded and officially, you know, um, if you're a member of the ultras, you're a terrorist. You can be charged under emergency law and imprisoned. Uh, and once you're charged in Egypt, you find it very hard to get yourself out of uh, jail. You know, you just get caught up in a loop of court appearances. So it's, uh, you know, that's it's a very oppressive system that in a way, uh, certainly on a, on a, you know, a, a, a public level has kind of crushed the movement. Um, but I think the spark of it is still there. And certainly the things that made people angry and want to be part of the ultras, uh, the, the reasons are all still there, if not worse now than they were 10 years ago. Well, you see, just to, just to touch on your own personal, uh, as you were documenting things in, in your own, you said earlier about your own dealings and meeting the actual groups and, you know, meeting the ultras in person and different things like that. What, what was that like? You know, how did that sort of come about? I'd, I'd imagine it'd be quite, you know, the size of these groups and the numbers and stuff that are involved. Was it, you know, I'd imagine it'd be quite uh, hostile and... and no, 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 I wouldn't say they're hostile, no. no. I mean, what happened in the aftermath, as I said, was there was uh, there were these riots, but then the ultras set up a protest camp outside the parliament and they occupied the street. And there were probably, you know, a couple of hundred there sleeping there all the time. But then every evening, you know, five, 10, 20,000 would gather. And these were incredible, you know, be family members of, people who had died and stuff. And these were incredibly emotional kind of, these were like, it was kind of like mass mourning, you know, like it was really, really powerful. Um, and that was my kind of introduction to the ultras was that moment. Um, and there were many, many, you know, media people hanging around, uh, Al Qazira were there, you know, they were trying to make a, a documentary on the ultras and the ultras have a policy of no media, you know, so they don't, they don't interact with the media. And that sort of wavered a little bit, um, as in they found a couple of spokespeople to put out to talk to the media about Port Said um, and, to make, and to make it an issue, you know, make it a, a, you know, to call for an inquiry, to make sure there was going to be court cases, that people were going to be arrested um, and all that stuff. Um, but no, but it wasn't hostile at all. It took me a long time to meet the ultras. You could meet ultras, obviously, because there were so many of them. Like I said, numbers range at like half a million at that time. So it wasn't hard to meet ultras. But I did sort of, uh, through contacts, find my way to meet the kind of uh, ones that were organizing the groups, the ones that were kind of had founded the movement itself. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was really interesting you know they were under a lot of pressure you know they were under a lot of pressure like publicly also they had the media where you know what journalists are like they're all you know they're sort of sniffing around looking for a way in um and then you know you have a lot of 
basically a lot of people informing, you know, so you really, yeah, you can't, you, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, you do end up getting a bit paranoid yourself when you, <laughs> when you operate in this kind of world. Um, was, your, was your own, sorry to come in on it, but was yeah, your yeah. own, your own knowledge, like, were you, were you sort of clued up on kind of ultra scene back home, you know, Europe no. and not not at all? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I, what just surprised me about it was that it was in somewhere like Egypt, you know, just a completely different culture. Um, I just didn't expect it. You know, you didn't expect people to be so football obsessed. I mean, not only with their own teams, but, you know, I mean, now it's, it's with Mo Salah. It's Liverpool is the, you know, is the big team there now, you know, but so, yeah, so they're just really passionate about football. Um, it's really, it's, it's great kind of football culture. Um, so, yeah, so I was just drawn to that. I just thought that's really fascinating. But like I said, also, it just, Port Said happened literally within the first couple of weeks I was there. So it would have been hard to ignore it anyway, you know, because it was just such a, you know, terrible incident. Um, the, the aftermath in Ronnie, if, there, if the ultras camping out and then during the night, um, people, the thousands of people were coming and all. Did I know that they did get the court cases? Could you tell people because if people are sentenced to death and others appealed, then how, how did that all come about? Or, or how, is it still ongoing just now? Well, okay. So what happened was, uh, you know, the ultras wanted, you know, they didn't want people to get away with it. You know, but what happened? Um, so there were court cases, uh, but in the end, you know, there was the first, you know, it took a, it took like a year actually for the first court cases to be announced. Uh, that was 2013. And in that initial announcement, there were, uh, I think 21 death sentences handed out. Now in Egypt, they, they hand out a lot of death sentences, but they don't actually act upon that many of them. You know, um, they then get appealed and then there's a process. So, so in the end, but the, the big point was that in the end, actually none of the police, none of the stadium officials and no, none of the security forces were charged for anything. You know, the only people that were charged and uh, sentenced were just, you know, these kind of regular fans who were, you know, some kind of evidence was found against them, some kind of camera evidence or whatever, and they were charged. So in a way, they were just scapegoats for the kind of conspiracy that was going on in the background. So, so the you obviously discussed, like you spoke about the Air Force One massacre yeah. that happened after that. But um, so so was it worth it? I don't want to kind of seem like I'm rounding up because we can ask people to ask you questions and that, mate. But yeah. can you? you there was like 100,000 people going to games, don't you? Nobody going to any games up until very recently. He said that since Hosni Mubarak was out of government and the other guys came in, there was not, is there much change for the Egyptian people? Do, do, you, do you think the, the ultras yeah. thought it was ultimately worth it? Because I know there's a, there's a growing movement in Morocco and various other African nations are now. Yeah, I know Morocco's died down the past few months because there's a, a deal between the kind of rival groups, but um, mm. they're, they're basically for anybody with that kind of mentality and love a love a sports or a love a football. Do do you think that they think it was actually worth kind of putting their heads above the parapet to an extent? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the thing is, you will find a lot of football fans who would, who have actually kind of turned on the ultras, actually, you know, and would say, you know, basically they they were responsible for kind of ruining football, you know, that, you know, they politicized football and then it got, it got caught up in the revolution. And, you know, the Egyptian state are just incredibly cruel, you know, it's like there's no kind of end to their you know uh, oppression of the of the populace particularly the working class people um so yeah on this i think on on one level you could say yeah it's it um you know things are certainly a lot worse than they were 10 years ago i mean that's that's without a shadow of a doubt on absolutely every level on you know freedom of speech on any kind of democracy on economic standing people are much worse off than they were um freedom of expression in any way you know you can get arrested for doing anything in egypt now you know um so yeah i mean but whether the ultras were responsible for that is i don't know and you know if that's a fair question you know you know it's um it's it's actually sort of you know the ultra situation is actually sort of paralleled with the whole kind of youth generation you know who want some kind of change but know that the price of that change or trying to get that change is extreme you know and you've seen what's happened in syria you know it's kind of wrapped up in a civil war now um tunisia is not you know nowhere really from that period from what was called the arab spring really nowhere is actually worked out you could say in that sense things are probably worse now than they were 10 years ago and football is also one of those um Casualties, you know. Was there even the other Arab Springs that was happening, particularly after Egypt? Was was there talk of anybody that was involved in the revolution? Can I lend? I wouldn't say lending their expertise, but going to different countries and because obviously the Arab world, there's a lot of countries that are quite close together and there's a bond between them. Was did people go to other countries and like, share their experience, how to deal with this, how to deal with that, or did they just kind of keep it country to country? Yeah, it's a, I'm not sure, really. I think a lot of people have to leave their country, um, but they probably have to try and find somewhere, uh, you know, get some kind of political asylum somewhere. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of Egyptians in, in uh, Germany, you know, like there's a whole... In fact, I think a lot of the people who could from that time have relocated um but you can see things are, are still happening in sudan for instance you know i mean there's a there's a whole protest movement there but yeah i mean it's it's you know from living there i'm you know i'm just close to 10 years now there um yeah it certainly feels like it's worse than it was before even before the revolution even during mubarak's time it feels worse it feels the op- Pressure of the state is more extreme. The channels for any kind of freedom. I mean, I don't know if how much any of you guys or your listeners follow events, but you know, there were three girls were put in prison for three years for doing TikTok videos. You know, because it was deemed that they were corrupting the moral core of Egyptian society. So it's like three years for. A TikTok video, you know, so it's um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's almost something about oppression, you know. It needs to find new targets. It can't just 
sit back. It needs to kind of keep rolling along. So, but I mean, if I, I mean, I've no, I can't speculate, you know, as to whether anything will change or when it will change or whatever, but it's a pretty difficult situation and it's difficult for football fans for sure. I would imagine then that the, the repression still being so bad there with the two groups resolving. Um, there's that absolutely no chance of any kind of other organisations happening from that or, or even trying to organise the stadiums. We take it that's just never going to happen in Egypt. So yeah. not very unlikely. Yeah, it's, I mean, you can't even gather in a group. I think that's over 10 people or something. Is And it's, this is nothing to do with COVID. You know, this is <laughs> just the way that state operates. Yeah, it's it's... Any, any kind of sniff of any kind of strike or protest or any kind of opposition to the government is just met with, you know, extreme force, you know? What are you thinking, Ked? What are you I, was going to, I was going to say, I might mean, maybe open the floor up a wee bit if anybody's got, you know, any questions or anything like can fire them in the chat and we'll... Because uh, one can, I'm fear to touch a screen in case it breaks again. Is there anything so, you would like to kind of bring up, Ronnie? Uh, no, I can see there's a question there, and um, you, you in got it, Ronnie. I... About uh, Bill Bradley. Yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah. That's a, yeah. 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 He was the American national. Well, he was American, but he was the national coach for the Egyptian team, and he came out in the aftermath of uh, Port Said and said, "Well, it wasn't regular fan-on-fan violence." You know, and then I don't know how quickly after that, but he lost his job, you know, he was gone. So, yeah, um, I think he was, you know, yeah, I think he was seen as as one of the few people who sort of called it as it was, you know. Um, There was a a boy who played with Zamalek. Um, I think he was kind of involved with Ultra, but he he was friends with them. And after the the Air Force One kind of, the Air Force Massacre, did he not speak out on it that when they tried, they said to the players not to play? Yeah, so, yeah, so what, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll explain that. So what happened was um, there was a game where uh, I think 10,000 tickets were made available, but 5,000 were given to Zamalek and 5,000 were given to the uh, other, I can't remember which African team was playing. And that 5,000 tickets, instead of being distributed amongst the fan base was basically given out by the chairman who's this total you know I mean the ultras have had like huge fights with him um, uh, uh, Mortada he, he's he's a crony of Sisi he's really closely aligned to the government and he just gave the tickets out to his cronies you know he just the, the fan base almost had none so you know Thousands of ultras went down to that game to try and kind of somehow get in because in Egypt there's also a tradition of being able to kind of just bribe your way into a game, you know, just somebody working in the stadium will let you in somewhere. So, you know, they were trying to somehow figure out a way to get in. This is, they went down hours before the game. They got corralled into this kind of barbed wire hut. And that's where, you know, most of the casualties happened. But as this was all happening, the Zamalek team arrived to play the game, right? And the fans were hanging out of the bus. 
some of the fans got inside and when the game started, they asked the players to stop the game, the people had died outside, you know, and all of them, I can't remember the player, I think it was the goalkeeper, I can't remember his name now, but he actually refused to play the game because he knew what was happening. So he was the only one that really stood up for the fans at that time. So, yeah. Uh, does, do you want me to read the questions? or do you, do you so It's up to you, mate. I yeah, just, I'll I just. I think that boy that refused to play. I think he was actually sold not yeah. long after it because yeah. the Zamalek chairman had said that obviously these aren't real fans and and that boy had came out and supported them. And I think he'd actually attended a cut of protests and yeah. I think he was he was sold to a team in Switzerland. I can't quite mind what one. Yeah, yeah. There was a couple of athlete players that were very close to the ultras as well. There's a famous one, Abu Treka, um, who was the Egyptian national captain. Um, and yeah, and he's he had to get out of Egypt, I think, in 2012 because of you know state harassment. And I, I think he's in Turkey now, I'm not sure where he is, but um, but he's like you know, he's he's uh, you know, he's like a sort of figurehead for the ultras in, in football terms. So, yeah, yeah he, some of the players are are with the fans, if you like, um, for sure, you know. I'll read another one. Sorry, no, on you go, mate, on you go. Yeah, no, I just want to say another thing to think about, because again, people may not know, is that when Port Said happened, uh, the, the athlete players were attacked as well. I mean, they had to run for their lives. And then fans were brought into the, the, the dressing rooms, uh, you know, as Port Said was happening. So they saw people dying in front of them and stuff, you know, and... So a lot of those players were traumatized from from that as well, you know. So it's it's not that the team and the players are totally aloof, you know, from from the actual fans at all. So I've got I've got we one come in, ah. Ronnie. I'll put to you. It's, have any of the key figures for the ultras, you know, just completely disappeared, or you know, is any of them that you know maybe tried to use uh, notoriety to maybe go into politics or into a local government or anything like that? No. No, like okay. I said, the Ultras are now a terrorist association or organisation. So if you openly identify as an Ultra, um, you know, you can be arrested under emergency legislation and put into prison indefinitely. So, no. <laughs> yeah. The other one that somebody said is... Um, um, I don't know if you can, uh, what you can I say there. Maybe I look at it, they'll be keeping their head down. But what are the ultras or the leaders of the movements up to now? Are they still in Egypt? Do they channel their passion in other areas? Because to lose your ultras group, it must leave a pretty big void. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were different kind of leaderships. I mean, it's um, you know, particularly with the Zamalek. Uh, I know that their uh, leader in sort of 2014-15, he sort of got involved with. Islamic, you know, groups, you know, extreme groups. Um, and he ended up being arrested and has caught up in the sort of prison system indefinitely. But yeah, there were certain radicalizations. I know there were some other ultras went to Syria um, for the, during the civil war. So yeah, there were certain people that, you know, I guess went more extreme into it. Um, as a consequence, and I know a couple of people who were imprisoned and stuff, and certainly they've, you know, they've paid a personal price 
um, for those experiences because the Egyptian prison system is pretty nasty place to end end up in. Um, you know, you don't get your three square meals a day um, and stuff. So yeah, it's it's but it's kind of like the the broader protest movements of 2011 it's like all of those people who died all of those people who were maimed and injured all their families they just don't have any any outlet you know they don't have any like you know the media don't don't there's no media i mean the 10th anniversary of the revolution was last year um you know 2021 and there was nothing like not a thing not anything it's like it never happened you know and that fit that fits the interests and the agenda of the government, you know. We've got we've got one came in, yeah. Ronnie, it is so when all the fans were banned, you know, for all those years, how did the clubs actually survive financially? Well, mainly through sponsorship, and they still had TV rights, and they have a huge merchandising operation. You know, like I said, it's athlete athlete have. 20, 30, 30 million fans. So, you know, it's a big uh, merchandising operation at least. But yeah, for sure they were affected. But I think as we know, um, you know, what fans contribute through the, the gate ticket prices is not really how football clubs gain their main revenue anyway. So, you know, um, and also that football ticket entry prices were fairly cheap in Egypt as well. You know, so there wasn't a big revenue on the gate. Um, so yeah, they they were hit, but you know they could survive. It's just it's a bit different for here because obviously with, with Celtic, you've not got like big TV deals or anything like that. So in one sense, we us that's where we we can, can be a wee bit more successful because it's the fan tickets that actually do kind of keep us going. Yeah, like, yeah. So uh, yeah. so that's maybe a positive. For for your group, for your group, and maybe the fans in Scotland in general, not I mean because it is kind of that kind of contribute to me most. But as you say, if it's in Egypt and it's the tickets are pretty cheap there, then it's obviously a different kind of scene they can easily kind of do without the fans and still keep the everything ticking over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other one here is: were there any note? I just moved up on me here two settings on a minute. Um, were there any notable differences between Ultras Al-Ali and the White Knights in terms of ideology, style of the regions of the city, or was it just purely a football rivalry? Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is my own personal experience that um, because I initially wanted to make a film about Port Said and what happened there. That was my uh, entry point, like was to make a film and not write a book. Um and I tried many times with the White Knights to, you know, to kind of convince them that, you know, I'd let them tell their story. It was going to be their, um, you know, their, their voice and all that. But they were just really difficult to win over. They're just totally suspicious of any media people, no matter how, whatever, sincere they are, or, you know. Um, whereas Alatli are much bigger you know, much bigger organization, but always seemed a little bit more amenable, um, you know, and drawn into that kind of media, media sphere. So I think ideologically, they're probably quite similar, similar, but I think 
I would have to say I think the White Knights are probably a little bit more hardcore and militant and smaller, but and maybe that's part of it as well. Um, and certainly that leader who became drawn into like Islamic fundamentalism and you know those kind of radical fringes in the Middle East. I mean, he was certainly leading them in a in that kind of direction. So that that's that's a pretty toxic kind of mix with uh, football. Well, they, what sort of profile does Celtic have in Egypt? You know, especially with the ultras of that, would they know, example, a Celtic or would they know, you know, who we are? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, football fans would know who Celtic are, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, part of my book covers a little bit about Celtic and, you know, Israel, Palestine and the, uh, you know, the way football is used in Israel. So, yeah, um, but... It's a funny kind of thing. Ireland wouldn't, or Scotland, or actually Scotland has a little bit more of a presence than Ireland, I have to say. Uh, uh, but some people wouldn't even know where Ireland is, you know, in Egypt, you know. They just, they, their kind of global outlook is just kind of a bit limited. So it's mainly um, British and Italian and Spanish football that really kind of catches their eye. And they, and that's, that's on TV every every week you know whatever game is on is broadcast as well so people will have allegiances to whatever you know barcelona and liverpool as well as athlete for instance you know so they'll they'll go that but so i i don't think uh celtic are actually on that sort of um tv network so they don't really register as highly as they should i don't know if it was um, see about yourself in the book. You mentioned the the group a couple of times in regards yeah. to pa- Palestine. Is that was that kind of big news in Egypt, or was it just more social media? Um, I think that was kind of quite before. You know, that was quite a, a bit back. But yeah, certainly there will be an awareness of it. You know, amongst uh, football fans. You know, and I actually told some of my ultra friends I was going to be on this tonight, and they were really chuffed. Uh, to hear that. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's great sort of solidarities amongst ultras groups, right? I mean, I don't know what, what you guys would say to that. Uh, but, you know, it seems like, a, I mean, I know some German ultras as well. So it seems to be this, you know, kind of a, an, another kind of culture, you know, around football that is not plugged into the kind of main media, mainstream club ownership orientation of football, you know? But I, 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 I will I leave that one up to you though to answer. <laughs> can, can I just fire one at you, mate? Just yeah. I know I, I touched on earlier about the obviously where the time and stuff like that and keep me much longer, but I t- touched on earlier about the, the Egyptian boy that was obviously studying in Bologna in Italy and, and went back and you know had an interest in the ultra scene. But see when he was starting that up, was it just you know, numbers wise and stuff? I take it just obviously huge supports, but was it just, you know, him and a couple of other guys or, you know, was there like immediate big, big numbers in these ultras groups or, you know, the ourselves when we first started up back in 2006, that's all it was, you know, it was a handful of boys that yeah. were trying to implement that kind of culture and that way of supporting the team. I'm just yeah. interested to, to know if that was kind of similar. Yeah, it was absolutely similar. I mean, it was literally, I think about 20 fans that just, 
said, yeah, let's give it a go and let's do a few TIFOs. And, and then once they started doing that stuff, it sort of, you know, it spiraled and, uh, you know, became much larger. But certainly the kind of beginning of it, and they're very, very, I mean, they're now relatively old, you know. Um, and like I said, unfortunately, Amr has passed away. So um, they're, they're kind of, they've sort of, grown out of their ultras thing because that's also another maybe a cultural thing in Egypt it's sort of seen as something that people do when they're younger you know like so when you get to 30 you wouldn't really participate in it anymore you know um so and a lot of them have gone through the mill with what we've been talking about earlier anyway so they're kind of worn out but then there's a you know there's a younger generation coming through and you know I think they can't really organize as openly as they as they could have you know um because of the restrictions but i think there's still people talking to each other you know they're still there and you know i mean hopefully they'll somebody will kick it off again you know because it's um like i said it was like a big release for people you know it was it was a really if you if you you know if you look at any of the youtube footage of the stuff in the stadiums i think you'll be pretty blown away by the kind of intensity of the the crowds and you know the kind of pulsating energy you know the kind of choreographed dancing it's it's really like celebratory or something you know it's like it's a bit like a, a club atmosphere or something you know um so it's maybe a different kind of approach to football fandom on that level you know but they certainly ultra groups certainly have a you know a big affinity with you know, all the ultra groups in other countries as well and look towards them. Unless anybody's got anything else to say, Ronnie, the, I kind of, the last question is one of the boys said, you haven't exactly sold Egypt to us. <laughs> so, <laughs> what attracted you to the country? Do you still have that attraction? And you said that you didn't really know much about the, the ultra scene or the mentality. Now that you've kind of experienced it and with the kind of work you're involved in, has it made you have any plans to explore any other kind of ultra scenes, uh, ultra scenes in that region or even further afield? Yeah, um, well, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm sorry for giving a very sort of depressing outlook on Egypt, you know. Um, it's okay, what mate, can you say? Fake, fake, fake I mean, has, exactly, <laughs> yeah, it's we're talking to Glasgow here, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, if you know, you were again, you, like you were saying to me, you had uh, Dick McFarland on uh, last week. So, I mean, if you, you've been to Belfast in the 80s or the 90s, you know, um, you know, it wasn't exactly getting great rep internationally, you know, as, you know, number one place to visit in Europe or something. Um, but, you know, there was something going on there. You know, people were alive and, uh, you know, often tough situations bring out really good things in people so i'd say the same thing about egypt and i'd say also that maybe something that's i've noticed because when i went to live in egypt i didn't know much about the arab world but i've traveled around a little bit so i've got a sense of some of the differences and egyptians are extremely friendly warm people um and you know not not really that aggressive although they may seem very aggressive <laughs> you know when you meet them first but they're actually really warm people and that's that's the thing that kind of keeps me there and i enjoy about it it's uh, it's actually good crack believe it or not despite all of these things and nobody is fooled by the kind of government 
you know, propaganda bullshit, you know, everybody more, everyone with a brain kind of knows the real story. And I think I, I sent you a podcast I did last month with a, a you know, a young Egyptian guy who runs that uh, Tahir podcast, you know, and he's, he knows exactly what's going on. So it's, so I'm sorry if I give a very bad impression. I'm sure if you went there, you'd enjoy it, right? Um, you know, you'd get a good laugh out of it. And uh, be a few, a few stuck in that Egyptian prison system that you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, that's true. Um, but no, I haven't, I haven't explored other football cultures. If that was, I think that was the end bit of the question mm. there. Um, no, I haven't. Uh, I think you know that Jim or. Yeah, James Montague book did it really well, actually. Um, Friday, what's it called? You mentioned it earlier. When Friday, Friday, comes. When Friday comes around. Yeah, he did it really well. Um, but who knows, you know? Oh, Kev, do you want to wrap it up? Aye. If that's okay, is that okay keep you on him? Are you quite happy yeah, with that? Yeah, sure, sure. I hope I kind of, I'm so, like, I really hope I didn't put you off Egypt, guys. No, that's no, no. Anything I want to say. No, you know, no. it's it's uh, it's still a bit of crack. You know, honestly, believe you and me. No, no, I told me, but just thanks, have a big thanks. Okay, well, it's an honour to meet the Celtic ultras. Uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed including what I could find out about your activism in in my book, and uh, you know, well deserved. Like to what you're getting up to, it's it's good to see it, and uh, you know, well done. Yeah. No just, problem, mate. I appreciate that. And just, just on your book, Ronnie, it's uh if anybody is on here is kinda would like more information regarding it, I would yeah. I would definitely recommend it, mate, because uh, as I said to you previously, I've been I've been going to get it for ages and when I finally bit the bullet and bought it, um I, I read through it and I cut a nice, it was ideal. It gave you you kinda piece together the jigsaws and wee bits and bobs that you read online. It kind of gives you a, a, a kind of fuller story on it. So I, anybody who's is kind of interested interested in it, then I would recommend buying it. Uh, yeah, I think somebody said, where can you buy the book? Uh, you can buy just buy it online. I don't think it's really in any bookstores in, in England or Scotland or, or I don't know where. The distribution is a bit ropey, but it's on any, it's on lots of different, uh, you know, uh, platforms online and it's I think you can even get your book sh bookshop to order it if you want to do that if you prefer to avoid Amazon which isn't a bad idea um, <laughs> okay. oh magic so, yeah. thanks for that Ronnie and uh, thanks, just a guys. big thanks thanks to everybody for tuning in again and hopefully not be too long until we're back with you so cheers guys let me know Carlton Books can get through it though so you don't have to go through Amazon Carlton Books might be able to get it I will there's a wee kind of local bookshop in Glasgow on here, Calton Books. There's a lot of political kind of stuff. Just it's pretty small, but it's it's pretty radical as well. So maybe one yeah. of the boys can get in touch and we'll try to see if we can get something sorted with that. Yeah, listen, it's it's honestly the distribution is easy. You know, the book is uh, it's it's in a couple of places in London. I know somebody people have told me, and I I don't really track it. I'm not really involved in that, but. It's yeah, it's you can order. I think bookshops can order it really easily, you know. It's and it's a good old, it's actually in Germany, it's they people do that a lot, they sort of try to avoid Amazon. So, um, it's a, it, and you can get it really quick through your books or you know, like in a day or two or something, you know. So, I think it's a good option. So, yeah, please, <laughs> you know, 
No problem. Okay, thanks very much anyway, Ronnie. All right, thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, Ronnie.